Welcome to The Book Podcast, where we discuss books about the book, the Bible, with your hosts, Scott Moffitt, Gabriel Penfield, and Gary Karwaski. Welcome to the 24th podcast of the book. We interview authors who have written important and influential books about the book. Our goal is to host in-depth discussions on the content of their books with the author, of course. Today, our guest is J.B. Hickson. He is an author, a conference speaker, a pastor, and he is comfortable in both the academic setting and in the pulpit. He is recognized as an expert in systematic theology and eschatology. J.B.'s educational background is extensive. He holds a B.A. from Houston Baptist University, a T.H.M. from D.T.S., and a Ph.D. from Baptist Bible Seminary. J.B. has authored many books, including Getting the Gospel Wrong and the Gospel Unplugged, The Great Last Day's Deception, What Lies Ahead, and he co-authored Freely by His Grace. Today, we explore his newest series of books entitled Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1 and 2. Currently, J.B. pastors Plum Creek Chapel in, is that Sedalia, Colorado? That's, is that correct? That's right. You got it. And he has his, own personal, he has his own personal ministry, not by works. <laughs> he is supported by his wife, Wendy, with whom he has had six children and a grandchild. And today, I am your host, Scott Moffat, and I'm joined by Gary Karwaski, retired pastor, and my grandson, Gabriel Penfield. Let me begin by saying, JB, this was a very disturbing read. But one, I believe, underscores what I already knew to be true. So my first question to you, JB, is this. Why did you write this book, and why at this time? Is there something in the culture taking place that's driving your interest in this topic of the Antichrist? Well, uh, hello, Scott and Gary and Gabe. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. Really looking forward to our discussion today. So, yeah, the, my newest uh, books are called Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Mm -hmm. And Volume 1 came out in March. Uh, volume 2 just came out last month. And um, I have been actually studying and researching the Luciferian conspiracy for over 15 years. Uh, my first book on that subject came out in 2012, and uh, it was such, you know, I, I just started going down the rabbit hole, just kind of gotten into it, and really thought it was such an urgent topic that I wanted to get something out there in print from a, a biblical uh, dispensational perspective, uh, but then uh, continued to study and research, and it's just been exhaustive as I've literally traveled uh, the country and done, you know, deep research into many, many topics. And so we uh, we set out to write the book, and as I kind of started working on it, it just became clear pretty early on that it wasn't going to fit in one book, so we turned it into two. And, uh, you know, I just feel like, you know, we have to follow the admonition of our Lord who said he who rebuked the first century Jewish uh, leaders for not discerning the signs of the times we don't want to make that same mistake so as I look around and see the stage being set for the soon coming of our Lord I just feel like it's more important than ever for people to understand the cosmic battle that's going on between Satan and God in in this struggle for control of the created realm mm, sure yeah going back to your ministry um no, it's not by works. Uh, could you explain like why you named it not by works? What does that mean? And the importance of that? Yeah, you bet, uh, Gabe. So our, our primary ministry is not by works ministries. We've been around since 1999. Our passion is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. And our name comes from Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And uh, so we've always had this uh, as an auxiliary part of our ministry when I was teaching full-time. I spent 12 years in academics and also have been in pastoral ministry. Uh, right now, we're the lead, I'm the lead pastor at Plum Creek Chapel in uh, the Denver, Colorado area. 
in uh, in Sedalia, as uh, uh, Scott mentioned earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, not by works ministries really is is keeps us busy. We still travel and do a lot of speaking. We have uh, you know a lot do a lot of interviews, do a lot of uh, conferences, writing uh, DVDs, things like that. And so you know sometimes people ask me, Gabe, wh- why how, why are you so interested in end times Bible prophecy, it doesn't seem like that fits with your passion on soteriology, the the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. Well, in my mind, they fit like a glove because uh, that third component there, clarity, accuracy, and urgency, uh, certainly the imminent return of our Lord at the rapture creates urgency. And I think more than ever before, people need to hear the gospel and understand that only through faith alone in Christ alone can you be saved. Mm. Yeah, let's talk about the seriousness of the book. Uh, one of the things that we observed was there no endorsements in front of the book by other fellow theologians. So I'm wondering if there was a reason for that. Is the book too controversial, too dark, uh, too disturbing uh, for other theologians to say, hey, we like this guy, J.B. Hicks, and yet I know other eschatologists quote you. Yeah, no, thanks, uh, Gary. No, it's it it is a heavy book to be sure. Uh, but the reason we didn't uh, put endorsements in the front like we usually do, this was our tenth and eleventh books, and uh, it was it was simply a pragmatic reason. Uh, you know, the the with everything that's gone on with the uh, the pandemic and the election and just the great reset and and the transhumanism and all the stuff that we get into in the books, I just felt like. The time was short, and it takes about 90 extra days to complete the book, get it completely finished and typeset, sent off to all of my colleagues and friends, give them time to read it, and then have them make an informed endorsement. And I just didn't want to take the 90 days. Uh, so it's certainly been endorsed. Uh, it, we've been on Olive Tree Ministries, David Fiorazzo, Stand Up for the Truth, Lamb and Line Ministries, and many others. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, we just left out the endorsements. So. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> If you had called us, we would have endorsed the book. Yeah. <laughs> well, next time. There you go. Okay. This book is entitled Spirit of the Antichrist. First John 2.18, the apostle states that many antichrists have come. How does the spirit of the antichrist differ, or if it doesn't tell us, from the antichrist is to who is to manifest himself? Yeah, so the, the the key passages that serve as the premise for the book, uh, as you mentioned, come from 1 John. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, the one you quoted, tells us that even though one Antichrist, capital A, is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. But then the cor- correlating verse is in chapter 4, verse 3, where John tells us, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and is now already in the world. Mm -hmm. And so the approach that I took in this two-volume series was to say, uh, look, we we know a lot about the Antichrist. The Bible uh, has a lot of real estate that deals with that future man of sin, the son of perdition. It tells us uh, a lot of his characteristics, the types of things that he will do, the roles that he will play in that final seven-year tribulation. And then if if that's true, and of course, we, we know a lot about what he's going to do, and it's also true that the spirit is alive and well today of that future Antichrist, then it follows, I, I figured, that we should see an upsurge in some of those types of behaviors. So I went through and I made a comprehensive list from Scripture of every characteristic I could remotely come up with from the text about the Antichrist. Then I collated those down into seven categories, uh, and I said, do we see an upsurge in these types of things today? And if so, that's a sign of the times that we're getting close to the end. So I came up with seven spirits of the Antichrist based on 1 John 4, 3. And by that term, I simply mean characteristics that are setting the stage for the future tyrannical rule of, of the Antichrist. Yeah, and you spend the first book talking about the entire book describing that very first uh, characteristic, I think, and then book two, which we'll get to at another time. You you deal with the uh, with the other six. You're you're really critical of, um, and I mean this positively because I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're very critical of almost every newspaper, almost every. Uh, computer program, you know, uh, or, you know, television program. Yeah. Television program. Thank you. That you look at them and you don't give them the benefit of the doubt at all. You say, these are lies from the very beginning. And Mm -hmm. um, why don't you explain some of that? Because we, you're even critical of 
some of what we might consider more conservative, um, uh, I guess, television stations. Fox uh, News. And Newsmax. Fox, Fox News would be one of them. Newsmax would be another. And those are sources that I think conservatives go to because they don't want to have anything to do with CNN or MSNBC or the uh, others or the others. Help us to understand that a little more. CNN is liberal and Fox News is conservative. And if you believe that, you've bought into a lie. Uh, so the fact of the matter is uh, we, we understand there is a right and a left philosophically, morally, theologically. You know, We understand there are principles that we would resonate with as conservative biblicists versus you know, immoral, liberal, progressive, woke type viewpoints. So there definitely is a philosophical right-left paradigm. But when it comes to the news media, uh, and we know this, by the way, as a matter of documented fact from Carol Quigley's uh, famous book, Tragedy and Hope, uh, the the right-left paradigm in the political realm and the news realm was contrived to kind of keep people moving along in the same direction. It's, uh, it's a classic example of what I talk about in... Uh, I think it's volume one, the Hegelian dialectic uh, mm -hmm. or controlled opposition. And so uh, certainly there are people and, and commentators on Fox News that we would resonate with some of the things that they say, but we need to understand they're being controlled. They're, they're kind of throwing us a bone. The reality is nothing really ever changes. Uh, depravity is a degenerative disease. It doesn't get better with time. And as Paul warned in 2 Timothy 3, th 13, things are getting worse and worse. Hmm. So do you get any pushback on this when you talk about these things publicly? Do you, do you I, ever get people angry at you? Yeah, Scott, I used to, especially in the early days, back you're going back 10 or uh, 15 years ago when I first started speaking out on a lot of these topics, I was uh, disinvited from certain conferences. I would speak at conferences and they would edit out certain things I would say before making yeah. the DVDs. Um, but honestly, not so much these days. I think, you know, really 2020 and all that's happened in the last two or three years mm. has awakened many, many people to the f the, the fake left-right paradigm. Uh, they, you know, I talk to people all the time that say, I just can't even watch Fox News anymore, you know? Mm. Uh, and so- uh, I, I do get some pushback every now and then, but not so much when it comes to the subject of, of the media. Most people understand that it's all kind of controlled and bought and paid for. Yeah. Gary and I grew, grew up in the era of Hal Lindsey mm -hmm. and his books on the end times. And mm -hmm. so I, I wanted to ask you this question. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Gabe. Um, chapter two is entitled, Who is the Antichrist? Is there really an answer for that? Or are we going to be like they were in the 70s and 80s in uh, evangelicalism where you know Henry Kissinger is the Antichrist one and so forth? What's your answer for that for people? Yeah, so chapter two is called, Who is the Antichrist? By that, though, I'm not saying we are asking who is going to play, you know, play the role or step into the role of the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. uh, I do happen to believe personally that it's most likely that the man who will become the Antichrist is alive today. But again, mm -hmm. we can't set dates. Uh, I don't have the mind of God. He may decide to tarry another hundred years for all we know. I don't think so. I think it seems pretty clear we're, we're knocking on the door of the end game. But uh, that chapter is all about who is the Antichrist, meaning you know, what is he like? What, you know, what role does he play? Where does he fit into Bible prophecy? What are some of his characteristics and, and functions and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, I've taught eschatology for, for years, and I've always, I, I agree with you that because Satan does not know when the second coming is, he's always had an Antichrist waiting in the wings if that moment should show up. So I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, going back to, um, I mean, we're going to get pretty deep in the weeds um, later on, but more superficial or more, not superficial, but more applicable <laughs> would be how we as Christians, right? We we know the Antichrist, right? This is in the world today, right? We know that a lot of the world, a lot of the world's going for that unified one government, right? Left, right, a lot of Republican versus Democrats kind of a paradigm. But how can we apply that to our lives? Like, should we be involved in politics? Should we be more on the sharing the gospel side? Should we be looking to change the culture? Like, how does this apply to us? What can we do as Christians? 
Yeah, so great question. And let me kind of back up to sort of paint a picture for, for, for the overall premise. Uh, so I'm using the term, I think I've used it already on this show, uh, the Luciferian conspiracy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, we may get to this later, but what I mean by that, a conspiracy, of course, is simply two or more people working together for nefarious means. That's a textbook definition. Mm -hmm. But there is a satanic conspiracy that began in heaven when Satan tried to usurp the throne of God. Uh, he was rebuffed and cast out of heaven, and he took a third of the angels that were allegiant to him with him. They're now demons, and Satan has ever since been trying to take over the world. If he couldn't have heaven, then he's going to take over God's created realm, and that's his goal. And so for 6,000 years, Satan has been working in tandem with his demons and with human accomplices, his human co-conspirators, to try to take over the world. And I think that's plain enough from Scripture. We see David, uh, King David talks about it in Psalm 2. We see, you know, Paul speaking of the spiritual battle and warfare that's taking place in Ephesians 6. It's laced all throughout Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I think believers do need to be aware of it. We, we do need to set our mind on things above, recognize that this world is about more than what we can see and touch and uh, here, there, there's a spiritual battle going on. And the minute we really understand uh, all of this uh, Luciferian conspiracy through the lens of Scripture, then it, it motivates us with even more urgency to share the gospel, to be prepared. I know we're going to talk about that later, to be ready. Uh, so a lot of people out there that are either not believers or maybe not biblicists uh, talk about the conspiracy. You know, they might call it the grand conspiracy or the deep state or the global elite. And there's tons of literature out there. I have bookshelves full of books that I've read in my research over the last 15 years. But I think what distinguishes what we're trying to cover in this two-volume series is that we understand the conspiracy through the lens of Scripture. The Bible is our only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. So everything that that we uh, put forth in these books, uh, we make an attempt to, to, to do it through the lens of Scripture. And so in the sense that all of Scripture is profitable— 2 Timothy 3, and the Luciferian conspiracy is plainly explained in Scripture, then yeah, it's extremely applicable for every believer. Yeah. Can we follow that rabbit trail a little bit, little bit more, even though we're out of the question uh, order? Um, I think uh, we know that the next event in the, the uh, theological calendar is the rapture. So that's the saints, the church saints being pulled off the planet uh, prior to the tribulation. So we're now living in the last days, 1 John 4, uh, but we're going to end up into the end times. So if believers are being raptured off the face of the planet, why should we bother do anything? Because yeah. uh, we're just waiting to be raptured. So let's let's go for it. Yeah, I, I, I would, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to kind of clarify that and address that very issue because it comes up all the time, especially from opponents of pre-tribulational dispensationalism who really don't understand what pre-tribulationalism really is. They've, they've created a straw man. Uh, but let me mention uh, real quick, because I should have mentioned this earlier, folks can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org, spiritoftheantichrist.org, and they can kind of review the books. I, I list the table of contents and give the entire uh, preface for both books. So if you're if you're kind of, if your interest is being piqued by this discussion, I encourage you to go to spiritoftheantichrist.org and you can check them out. But here's the reality. The, the promise of scripture is that believers will be rescued prior to the great day of the Lord's wrath, the, the tribulation, the overflowing scourge, the time of Jacob's trouble, right. all the different names that are given for that seven-year period in Scripture. But that does not mean that we will you know, be rescued before things get tough. In fact, for 2,000 years of church history, things have been tough for a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered some of the worst unspeakable persecution and martyrdom that we know of. And and I in the volume two, I have a whole chapter on the rise of anti-Christian sentiment in America. And I give some statistics in there and talk about how there are more martyrs for the faith today than in any other time in, in church history. So um, so it, it, it is very relevant for understanding what the Luciferians are planning, where they're headed, because if the Lord tarries is coming, Gary, we may not, we we may be here to live through that. And so 
you know, I run into people all the time who have this head in the sand mentality of, you know, whatever happens, happens. And, you know, they're the same ones that were carted off on the trains in World War II. And so the ones that survived and lived to tell about it were the ones that saw it coming, made preparations, were wise. And, you know, that's a biblical principle. Proverbs 22.3 reminds us that the, the wise person sees trouble coming and pre- prepares for it. So uh, I, I think this is extremely relevant. Uh, I sure hope. Finish the proverb. But, finish the proverb about the fool. Yeah, but the fool doesn't and suffers for it. He's yeah, punished. You know. You know? <laughs> so so that's the that's the reality. I mean, uh, I sure hope he comes back soon. But I you know I've got a little granddaughter. I've got six kids, and I shudder to think what life is going to be like. I mean, it is it is unraveling so fast with the yep. central bank digital currencies and oh, the yeah. one world system, all of that. So we need yeah. to be ready. Yeah, de- definitely be ready. I mean, I've, I've heard the, I've heard it here at Word of Life, right? Focus on the so Bible. Do you, Focus on do the you think it's going to be a prepper then? Yeah. Nah, you shouldn't <laughs> ask that question. Do you have a bunker? The question is, do you have a bunker in the back of your house? I tell you what, uh, I, you know, loose lips sink ships. So, uh, <laughs> but I will tell you, you should be prepared. You can't prepare for every contingency, uh, but I did a series of video series. It's available on our streaming. Uh, you aren't selling food. frozen food, are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just call me Jim no, Baker. He's selling no, MREs. Uh, MREs. <laughs> no, I have, I have a series. We, we sell a lot of streaming video content and one of them is called what in the world's going on. And I have a, a one of those eight videos in that series. Series talks about preparedness. Mm-hmm. And I, I give a diagram showing kind of the tension between presumption and faith. And it, it, it is not, uh, you know, it is not uh, an evidence of lack of faith to be prepared and to just to be prepared for these things. Uh, we, we trust God. Ultimately that goes without saying God is, is faithful. He's a covenant keeping God. We're going to trust him. But at the same time, I, you know, I, I need to do things to, you know, prepare for what's coming because God does not want us to wave the white flag of surrender and give up. He wants us on this earth for a reason, the Great Commission. Our job is not done. We can't just move to a mountaintop and and, and sing Kumbaya. We've got to live out our days and be obedient to the gospel call. But at the same time, if we aren't prepared, we're going to probably be one of the ones that are you know, swept away uh, in uh, some type of uh, depopulation mechanism or something. So, you know, I think everyone's preparation plan is uh, is unique. It depends on a lot of factors, where you live and all of that. But we do have a, uh, in fact, I'll email it to anybody. If anybody wants to email me, I'll be glad to send you a preparedness document that we put together that gives you a lot of suggestions on things uh, that the believer can and should do. Uh, and it's pretty comprehensive. So yeah, just uh, shoot me an email and I'll send that out. Hmm. Conspiracy theories are generally disregarded by most people. They tend to, you know, 9-11 is a conspiracy. That's what a lot of people do. And yeah, I, I remember when the Seahawks coach um, said he believed in it, he, he was uh, constantly criticized within the press. Yet you contend there are there is this conspiracy theory that's called the Luciferian conspiracy, and it's made up of humans and Satan and demon. When did all this begin? And do these people actually know they're playing a part in the Luciferian conspiracy? Or is this sort of like they're just melded together through the same mindset? Yeah, so great question. I'm glad we came back to that because I want to clarify you know, a little bit more details about that. It's not my contention. The Bible is plain that there is a Luciferian conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Satan, demons, and human counterparts, as David describes in Psalm 2, are working together to throw off the cords of God's control. They don't like control. Satan has control issues. Mm -hmm. God is sovereign. He's the creator of the universe. He's the almighty. He's already won the battle, but Satan doesn't doesn't believe that he's won, so he's continuing to fight. So there absolutely is, biblically speaking, uh, a Luciferian conspiracy. The human component of that is what gets a lot of uh, attention and what we spend a great deal of time, particularly in volume two uh, of my book. Uh, And by the way, in volume one, which is our subject today, in chapter three, I have a section called the conspiracy theory conspiracy. And if you remember from reading that, I'd point out that the phrase conspiracy theory 
was created by the CIA in April of 1967 because so many people were waking up to the truth about the assassination of JFK, and they realized the Warren Commission was completely senseless and didn't, and it was completely false. And so they needed a way to to kind of shut that down. And so they termed, uh, created this term conspiracy theory, weaponized it, and it's been being used you know, for 50 years or more ever since. There have been articles written about it. Academic journals talk about it. There's classes you can take in it. It's called mimetic hegemony, uh, furthering your dominance through memes. And uh, people use it all the time. So today, when someone, as you as you talked about, Scott, when someone is criticized like the coach that you talked about for being a, quote, conspiracy theorist, that's automatically presumed to be a pejorative term. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, conspiracies are, are nothing new. I mean, it's conspiracies are everywhere. In fact, I I think I, I can't remember the exact percentage, but I, I mentioned it in the book, but something near 70, 80%, maybe more of all federal criminal cases have uh, conspiracy in the title, in the charge. So, really? uh, you know, the, the going back to 9-11, I mean, the official narrative is a conspiracy according to this is the official narrative according to which 19 millennials wearing turbans uh, armed with nothing but plastic knives and box cutters were able to bring the mightiest military in the world to its knees for two and a half hours where we couldn't do anything and they were able to bring down three high-rise buildings that fell symmetrically into their own footprint at free fall speed because they flew planes into two of them. So that's a conspiracy. Now, it may be true. A lot of people think it's true. The government suggests that it's true. But what I believe we should do is be good stewards of truth and study it and look at the facts. And so today, as I mentioned in the introduction to Volume 1, thousands of architects and engineers are on record saying, the official narrative is impossible. Uh, thousands upon thousands of pilots are on record as saying it's impossible. Uh, we've got uh, scientific evidence. We've got first eyewitness accounts. We've got all kinds of evidence. Uh, and so I reject the official narrative of 9-11. Of course, it didn't. It, I'm not saying it didn't happen. It absolutely happened. And there were hijackers involved and 3,000 people lost their lives. But all I'm saying is that the official narrative is scientifically impossible. And so, you know, there's a conspiracy on both sides. Which conspiracy are you going to believe? That's all. Yeah. Um, I want to move on to part of the Luciferian conspiracy that includes the one world government. Um, Now, it's popularly known as the Great Reset. Um, I think most people are actually fully unaware of it. They're full, uh, fully unaware of the uh, we, you know, the Paul uh, Schwab, uh, and he's got a really evil associate. We'll talk about in the next book, but um, you know, uh, let's let's bring up this whole issue of the world coming to a one-world government, and I think we want to bring, and that's definitely scriptural. Okay, we, it sounds like we're going political, but we're actually going scriptural. I mean, we have got China on the move. Um, We've got the current administration in the United States working hard to destroy America. Mm. Why do they want to destroy America? To build back better. What's build back better? The Great Reset. So I I think when we bring those kinds of things up, people are like unbelieving. How could your own government be against its people? (laughs) Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so it is funny, and this gets into something I think we're going to talk about as we as we yes. go on, and that yes. is American exceptionalism. But uh, a lot of Christians have this notion where they intellectually understand the depths of evil when you talk about Stalin or Hitler or Pol Pot or Mao or all the you know even going back in ancient times Nebuchadnezzar and other ancient evil mm-hmm. uh, dictators. But somehow they think that depravity stops at the Beltway around Washington. Washington, D.C., as if somehow our leaders would never do that. And the reality is Washington, D.C. and New York City are absolutely key outposts in the human side of the Luciferian conspiracy today. Not to say that every politician is uh, a part of it. In fact, very few are willing uh, parties to it. It's all on a need-to-know compartmentalized basis. I diagram that out in in volume one. Uh, But clearly, um, you know, this notion that 
you know, that somehow our our political leaders are immune, or even worse, it's when people say Republicans in particular are immune to depravity. I just think that's naive. Um, you know, a lot of Republicans say, oh, only Democrats cheat in elections. Only Democrats would rig elections. You know, that that's just naive. Uh, so, but back to the Great Reset. The Great Reset, of course, everybody knows that term by now. And I have two extensive chapters in volume two on Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, transhumanism, artificial intelligence, and we, as you alluded to, Yuval Noah Harari and other key players yeah. today. Um, the what, what has happened is the Luciferians have been talking about the 2020s for almost 100 years as the target date to roll out the one world system politically, religiously, and economically. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. God is the ultimate arbiter of, of the timetable, but we know from their own writings that this has been their plan for almost 100 years. And I, I talk about that in volume two in a chapter called the, the Luciferian Timetable, and I document it. Um, so right now, the pandemic, which was pre-planned for 22 years, oh, I gave yeah. something like 16 smoking gun evidences of that in chapter nine of volume one, uh, was intended to kind of push them toward the goal line. And and it worked in many you know in, in many regards from their perspective. In fact, in their own writings, they, they talk about how they were so surprised at how easily it went over that they've upped their timeline. So instead of 2030, they're now hoping 2025 to 2028. So again, it doesn't mean that they're going to succeed. I'm not suggesting the end of the world is, is coming, but I just tell you that's their plan. And so the Great Reset and, and Klaus Schwab are kind of at the tip of the spear right now. I kind of call it mission control in the book. And uh, he's I'm not suggesting he's the Antichrist or anything like that, but clearly they see an opportunity to accomplish things that they have been talking about for decades and really longer than that in the grand scheme of things, but in our lifetime for decades. So they're chomping at the bit. They really believe that it can be rolled out. Uh, they're talking about uh, the central bank digital currencies and how that'll be a way to track everyone. It's right out of Revelation 13, where you can't buy or sell without the government's permission. They're talking about uh, uh, passport, uh, uh, vaccine passports for international travel. Uh, so lots, lots going on that seem to be setting the stage for the picture that the Bible paints of the tribulation period. Uh, but yeah, Klaus Schwab is definitely, you know, one of the key components of that right now. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, the the big the biggest um the biggest obstacle I've seen to that, and I've I've kind of had in my mind is, um, people have I use an example here. People have accused the NFL of rigging the system, right? The proper people are gonna proper team is gonna make it to the top. They're gonna win, right? But people will fight back against that by saying the NFL is so big. How could somebody keep that secret, right? How could somebody, um, how could this huge organization keep the secret? Now apply that to the government, right? And apply that to those in charge of the media companies and all the different people up top. How can this big conspiracy be kept secret, right? Obviously, they're in control of the media, which I'd agree with. But how can all this be kept under the radar so people like us, people that don't, um, that aren't up top, how do we not know about this? Right. How well, do you respond to that? Great question, man. You guys are asking some outstanding questions. I wish I, you know, wish everybody would ask these questions because these are the <laughs> things that matter most. So first of all, uh, you know, I would say that the premise is not correct. It is much, much easier to keep a secret than people realize. I mean, just look at uh, the uh, the atom bomb project, um, um, Manhattan Project. Manhattan project yeah. Thousands upon thousands of people were in on that and nobody knew. Uh, mm -hmm. Secondly, uh, Gabe, people do know. There are tons of people like me out there writing about this. I was stunned when I went back even into the you know, 18th, 19th centuries and found books of, by people talking about uh, you know, the grand conspiracy. People do know about it. It's just most people get their information from Fox News or CNN, from mainstream sources, and they're being or from television, and they're and they're being programmed. That's why they call it programming into mm -hmm. you know thinking a certain way. And and so you know the the knee jerk reaction is well, there's no way this could possibly be happening, or someone would have talked about it. Well, people are talking about it. Mm -hmm. Number one and number two, uh, it's very easy to control people. They don't have to control everyone. They just have to control certain. Uh, people, which is easy to do, certain politicians, just like they don't have to rig every election. 
They only need in our electoral college system to rig certain districts and it can turn an entire uh, election. So, uh, you know, this is uh, this is something that's well documented. I, I outline it, you know, very uh, in great detail in both volumes. But, uh, mm. uh, yeah, I don't I don't think it's that that complicated, really. You just talked about rigged elections and we're going through that again, the whole scenario in Arizona. Yeah. And I believe in um, Rhode Island and in Pennsylvania, um, people are complaining that the elections have been, um, you know, rigged. So my question is, what difference does it make if I vote? And should I be involved in politics? Should I, um, you know, do what a citizen is expected to do in our culture and seems to be something that's required by scripture? And, you know, Paul claimed his citizenship, so there's got to be something worthwhile about it. But can you flesh that out a little bit? Yeah. So another great question, Scott. And so I'll I'll preface it by asking you a question. Would would we be asking this question if we were believers living in Iran or North Korea or China or even Costa Rica? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, my my good friend, uh, uh, the late. Uh, oh man, I'm I'm having a brain freeze. But he's from Liberty. He just passed away. Uh, oh, oh yes, yeah. Uh, um, Ed yeah. Powell. Powell. Yeah. What is it? Talking about the president of Liberty? No, no. Ed, Ed, yeah. uh, his name's Ed. Oh. He was the he was the head of the uh, theological department there. Yeah. Anyway, he our died last month. Yeah. Yeah, our listeners know who he is, but I've shared the platform <laughs> with him many times, done conferences together across the country, and uh, he 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 gave a great answer. I think I state this in one of the two books. Uh, he said, every time we do Q and A's after an eschatology conference, the first question is always, where is America in Bible prophecy? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, I've done eschatology conferences in many dozens of countries across the world, and I never get that question. No, no one in no. no one in Brazil ever says, where's Brazil in Bible prophecy? You know, so America just has this sense of, of this misguided view of Romans 13 and this misguided view of civic involvement. But back to your question, should believers vote? I've answered this hundreds of times. I give the same answer every time. If you believe that your vote actually counts, then you absolutely have a biblical duty to, to, to vote and try to make a difference in this sin-stricken world. But if you have incontrovertible evidence that your vote is rigged, then of course you shouldn't vote. Why would you play the fool? So, and whenever, and I, by the way, I was talking about Dominion and, and uh, digital vote tabulation machines, you know, 10 years ago. And nobody even even heard of it. And people looked at me like I was nuts. Of course, now everybody understands after 2020 how easy it is to rig uh, an election using digital vote tabulation software. Dominion is not the only one, by the way. But if they can hack into the NSA servers, you you, you better believe they can easily, you know, pay off an 18-year-old computer whiz kid to, to manipulate uh, voting servers. So, you know, I guess the only visual picture that I can try to paint to help people understand this who are... And many people are still trapped in this understanding of we've got to vote, you know, uh, is mm -hmm. suppose that the, the mechanism of voting looked like this. You walked into a booth, closed the curtain behind you, and then almost like a Catholic confessional, there was another guy, except you can see him, you know, you, there's another guy standing right there and he goes, tell me who you'd like to vote to. You've never met this man. You don't know him. You, he's a complete stranger to you. But the way you vote is by whispering in his ear who you want to vote for. And then he goes, great, I've got it from here. And you walk out. Would you feel comfortable with that type of voting system? Well, you shouldn't. And that's exactly what happens with digital voting. You insert a card or you push a button on a, a keypad. It's almost all cards. Now, they, they tried the digital actual voting for a short time after the 2000 debacle, but it quickly there was too much of an outcry and they knew they couldn't get away with it. So now they make you feel like you're doing something good by filling out a scantron or poking a hole or whatever, but you still have to insert it in a machine. Right. And that's like giving it to a stranger. And you don't know what happens after that. Your vote is just a series no of record. dots and dashes on a server somewhere. And then you're told who won and you have to believe it. And so and, and as far as I'm concerned, as long as they're using the digital vote tabulation machines, they're playing us for the fool. But again, if you believe in your heart that your vote counts, then absolutely you should vote. Mm. The gentleman's name, by the way, is Ed Henson. Ed Henson. 
Oh, Ed Heinsohn, of course. Ed How, Heinsohn, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, my apologies to all of our friends and colleagues mm-hmm. out there who yeah. love Ed. He's a dear friend. I'm not friend sure of the pronunciation. Is it Heinsohn? Heinsohn, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for, for me, voting-wise, like, it, for me, it's just vote until you can't, right? At the very least, it takes up, what, 10 minutes of your day? And, like, I'm, I'm going to vote. I might not believe it's the most... Yeah gonna go the greatest but i'm I'm just gonna vote uh go back to the america exceptionalism idea um america's in a tough place right now has america always been <laughs> evil right because we hear a lot of the, the left and we hear a lot of the narrative now is pushing back against america and what it is and what it stood for and slavery and all this kind of different stuff has america ever pushed any good values forward founded on christian values or like what are your thoughts on that Yes, absolutely, and and there's no question that the the uh, Luciferians and their agents are trying to rewrite history and uh, and uh, can, can paint an entirely different picture of our of our history. Uh, but in in volume two, I have a, a chapter called "Fake Elections," and in that chapter, I have a section called "Whose Fingerprints Are on the Founding of America," and I document. How, while there's no question God's fingerprints are on the founding of America, and mm-hmm. God has used this nation more than any other to advance the gospel and to proclaim the truth, it is all, it is equally true and easily documented that Satan's fingerprints are on the founding uh, of this country. And the Luciferians uh, actually thought, and I'm talking about the, the founding father group, not the, the Puritans and Plymouth Rock group, mm-hmm. but the, the ones that came over later. Uh, that we often revere as founding fathers, some of whom we should. They were good, solid, patriot, God-fearing uh, people, right. but most of whom weren't. They came over uh, with orders from the Luciferians to create a beachhead for the New World Order. That's why they called it the New World, by the way, and mm. people don't know that. But uh, And what happened was they set up shop over here, uh, and uh, but the, but Satan and his human counterparts vastly underestimated the power of God's word, the power of Christianity, the power of faith in the Lord, and very quickly it kind of got away from them. And so we ex- we enjoyed the first you know 150 years or so of our of our nation of uh, being you know really uh, f- having freedoms and so forth. But around the turn of the 20th century, uh, they got serious about you know, trying to return back to their original goal. And with the help of groups like the Rockefellers and the Carnegie's and many others uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they set a course that changed America forever in, in areas of education, medicine. That's why they call it Western medicine, because we we, we went the whole big pharma route and they, they had a timeline. And that's why in the early 1920s, 1930s, you had people like Alice Bailey and Helena, Helena Blavatsky and others uh, touting allegedly, or not allegedly, in their own words, channeling demons who were telling them that by the 2020s, this was 100 years ago, by the 2020s, they were going to usher in their one world system. So uh, it was very systematic. Um, and I think, uh, so I definitely think that there's always a, a spirit of revival. The, the spirit of the Lord is alive and well. God's people are doing great things in certain pockets throughout this country. But on the whole, there's no question that Satan is the God of this age and the, the prince of the power of the air. And, and right now, all eyes are fixed on America. Because I think one of you said it earlier, I don't remember if it was you, Gabe, or somebody else, but uh, you know they've got to destroy America to before they can usher in the one world system. No question about it. America's the one thing standing in their way. So whether they, they do that economically or through war or through some kind of biological thing or through civil unrest, they, they're all kinds of you know EMPs. They've got all kinds of weapons in their arsenal, but they're, they are gunning for America. And it's not the Democrats gunning for America. It's the Luciferians gunning for America. The, the Democrats are just actors on the stage right now. Yeah, let's uh, let's flesh out a little more of the whole issue of because uh, we brought it up the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic and its role, uh, multiple roles actually, but we can extend that to the vaccines, and the the vaccines only continued the process, I believe, uh, and people are just now uh, coming up with uh, re- realizing that the vaccine doesn't do diddly squat, 
and, except to continue the mind control. And that's, that's what's all bringing into the end times. It's controlling people. Let's talk about that whole concept uh, and how that came about. And the vaccines continue the story. Yeah, so that was that's the biggest chapter in volume one. It's chapter nine called Big Pharma and Vaccines. And I give I start general with the big picture, but then the, the majority of that chapter is all about the COVID-19 pandemic and mm. the vaccine. And so, um, you know, as of today, I just called it up on my screen. There have been one point, almost 1.5 million adverse effects from uh, the COVID-19 vaccines as that's a whole. A, that's assuming that VAERS is being reported accurately, I believe. Correct. And by the way, when, when people try to debunk that and say, oh, well, that's just VAERS, don't forget, VAERS is run and accountable to this by the CDC and uh, and the FDA jointly. The so this is a government you know operation, and I talk about that. Oh, you detail. can trust it then. Yeah. So, yeah. So my point is, you know, you know, sometimes that the people think of it as a private organization and they just dismiss it because, oh, that's just a quote conspiracy. No, this is the government's own data. And by comparison, since the VAERS system started, and for those who may not know, VAERS stands for Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And it was established, uh, you know, to try to track uh, side effects and problems with vaccines. Uh, since it started in 1990, there have been a total of 2.36 million adverse effects. 1.47 of those have been since COVID came out and related specifically to COVID. So the numbers are exponential. There have been 42,000 deaths total since 1990 reported as a result of uh, the vaccines total. But 32,000 of those are from the COVID vaccine. Yeah. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And as you said, there was a Harvard study or study sponsored by Harvard done years ago that showed that really only 10% of adverse effects actually ever get reported. So the numbers are probably much worse than that. Um, mm -hmm. So what, what was the purpose? We, we know the virus was pre-planned. I call it the control of virus scamdemic. It was pre-planned. <laughs> rolled out, you know, 20 was planned 22 years earlier and rolled out right on cue. Um, but what about the, the the vaccine? Well, I believe it's it's two pronged, both of them relating to depopulation. So there's two aspects to uh, depopulation arms, not not depopulation, population control. Okay, it's the vac the vaccine is all about population control. And there's two aspects to that depopulation on the one hand, and that's why we're seeing so many deaths and injuries and infertility and, and, and things like that. But the other is population control in the sense of tracking. And I've really mm -hmm. come to believe as I've seen and watched this now since it all started happening back in 2020, that you know, the, the Luciferian uh, conspiracy is very complex. It's not monolithic. It's not like there's just one guy pushing buttons or pulling strings. It's it's sloppy and it's it's convoluted and there's internal struggles and competing agendas. But at the end of the day, I really have come to believe that a big part of the vaccine was all about control, that they needed to to have a mechanism to control people that will then segue nicely into the CBDCs that they're already rolling out and it sort of was all wrapped up in in one and i think these these vaccine passports that that some countries already rolled out with covid but many are now talking about rolling out are you know a big reason for it we we may not ever know uh, gary the ultimate you know reason behind this uh but it's nefarious without oh, yeah. question and i did a podcast uh, it's been probably over a year ago now on should christians take the vaccine. And I encourage people to search the Not By Works Ministries podcast channel for that podcast and go back and listen. It's interesting. We talk about the leaders of uh, this movement for the Great Reset, like Klaus Schwab, George Soros, and Bill Gates, yeah. and the rest of their ilk. They stayed publicly and without any problems that their uh, desire is to control the world population and to reduce it. Uh, and interestingly, the first two men mentioned, uh, Schwab and Soros, were products of Nazi Germany's ideology. They grew up underneath it. And then Bill Gates's father was uh, a Planned Parenthood zealot of eugenics. 
And so this isn't fake news. This is really true stuff. The Great Reset is the means that they're using it. And how does the mRNA vaccine play into that? The changing of the literal um, DNA. DNA of, yeah. of By the way, may I interject here? I was a pharmacist for 10 years. And as soon as I discovered that the, quote, vaccine was mRNA, I said, this is no vaccine. No. Not at all. Nope. No, it's it's not a vaccine. Everybody knows that by now. They're calling it a vaccine, but you know it's a SARS virus. Uh, we still don't have a vaccine for SARS one. It's been over twenty years. I asked my doctor one time when it, when this was all first rolling out before they even had the vaccine, in the early days of the pandemic, uh, and they had just uh, Trump had just started Operation Warp Speed, and he and he put uh, the one of the board members from Moderna in charge of Operation Warp Speed. Of course, yeah, like that's not a conflict of interest. Uh, but anyway, uh, I asked him. So since they've never come up with one for SARS one, and 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 all the scientific data and and research and medical journals shows that you really can't have a vaccine against a severe acute respiratory syndrome. What makes you think they're going to come up with one for for uh, SARS two? SARS-CoV-2. And he said, well, they've just put so many intelligent, brilliant minds from all across oh. the world on it that I'm sure they're going to come up with it. Well, that's, you know, that's naive. Um, the reality is it was a, an intentional uh, thing. I call it a gene editing bioinjection. It's not really a, a vaccine. Um, but yeah, you know, going back to, to Bill Gates, Bill Gates is the one who's been leading the charge with, with vaccines all across the world. He's been in trouble in some places like India. Uh, for the deaths and infertility that he's caused. Uh, he was on a TED Talk. I quote this in the book where he said, if we do a really good job with vaccines, we can reduce the world's population. Well, wait a minute. I thought vaccines were supposed to save yeah, people. Yeah. Uh, so, and he's never recanted that. Uh, so, yeah, there's no question that Satan wants to have this playground for himself. Um, they, 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 People often ask, you know, why the, the depopulation uh agenda what, what what is it well first of all satan loves death he's a murderer yeah. from the beginning jesus said a proverb says everyone who hates god loves death uh so they they he he's he just thrives on death particularly by the way i might add the death of children and i get into some of that really heavy stuff in uh chapter 13 of volume 2 when i talk about some of that but um I'll get there so uh, clearly he he wants to kill, uh, number one. He thrives on that. But secondly, just from a pragmatic perspective, from the human side of the conspiracy, the Luciferian elite, of course they want this playground for themselves. It's kind of like if you went to some big theme park, would you like to be there with several thousand of your friends or just have it to yourself? You wouldn't have to wait in line for the rides. You could get, you know, a snow cone whenever you want it, whatever. So they think the see the world that way. They want to get rid of all the useless breeders. They want to depopulate down to about 500 million, most of whom would be serfs that they need to kind of make their food, till their land, and climb atop their satanic altars and to be sacrificed. But the rest of them are they're just sitting back enjoying it. That that's their plan. They've they've talked about this, you know, ad nauseum in their in their documentation. Most people would say, do you really believe that, J.B.? Oh, I absolutely believe it uh, because I, I've seen it. I've, re I've read it. I've researched it. We've been all across the country. I've been, by the way, to the Georgia Guidestones. It is person. hard to believe, though. Yeah. Uh, it It's, I guess. Until you do it, the research. Until you really look into it. Yeah, it's hard to believe until you do the research. That's right. But it's also another thing that I think makes it so easy to believe is if you understand the Bible and you understand these sure. things I've been talking about, Satan's agenda, his love of death, the, the the conspiracy that David talks about of kings of the earth conspiring together to try to throw off God's mm -hmm. control. When you look at it through a biblical lens, it makes it easier. Now, uh, one comment on that, just to, to, to kind of relate to what you're saying about how it is difficult for many people to believe. If you read the preface in volume one, I share the story about how I kind of woke up, or I guess the introduction, not the preface, the introduction. Right. And Sean. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, with uh, Shane, actually, yeah. Shane, I'm sorry, so, Shane. So, and I, I talk yes. to him every day. Yes. We text almost every day. But yeah, you know, I was uh, went to lunch with him. He was working with me at a college, uh, uh, and uh, I was teaching full-time and in administration. 
And we had lunch frequently, almost every day. And this one particular day, he began to bring up some stuff that I just thought sounded absolutely nuts. But because I respected him and I knew he was not stupid and he was a biblicist, I left that lunch intrigued enough to go look into it. And that began my journey down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And I've been studying it exhaustively, uh, you know, really ever since. So it's absolutely true, as distasteful Mm -hmm. as it sounds. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people have never heard of the Overton window. Uh, What is it? And how has uh, it been helpful in furthering the Luciferian conspiracy? Yeah, so I talk about the Overton window. I can't remember if it's in volume one or volume two, but um, it's it, the Overton window, window was created by Joseph Overton, who basically uh, was a leader of a, a major think tank. Uh, he, by the way, he died uh, uh, very young at age 43 in a, a plane crash. Uh, he didn't fall out a window. Yeah, no, he didn't fall out a window, but he. It, it is always interesting how people that are key parts of, uh, you know, he he worked with Dow Chemical, then he took over the Mackinac Project or Mackinac Center, I think it was called, which was a huge think tank trying to help advance, you know, political agendas and government agendas. But he he's the one that credited with coming up with uh, the Overton window, and it's his namesake. But it basically describes a a comfort level that people have with certain policies that you've got to stay within the Overton window to get the public to go along with it. And if you step outside that Overton window, the public is going to reject it and, and not accept it. And so they, the Luciferians, they may not have called it the Overton window, but they, they know that. And so they've always been kind of incrementally bringing people along and widening that window, even though they might not have, again, use that term that's what they were doing it's mm-hmm. it's incrementalism and it's mm-hmm. it's the old frog in the kettle type thing so clearly right now you know i mean even 10 years ago it, it we we would not have been comfortable with some of the mainstream news coverage and thing television commercials and even tv shows that are promoting same-sex marriage and and and, and perverse types of behaviors. You slowly uh, break down the resistance to these things. Exactly. That's exactly what the Overton window is all, all about. Yep. So we're reaching the end here. What's the silver lining, right? Is there a silver lining? Is there any good news? Is there anything to leave listeners with that they can be joyful about? Like, what's the good news about it all? Yeah. So, you know, the, the good news is is that the bad news is just an indication that good news is coming, right? Yeah. Um, in other words, you know, when we when we study Bible prophecy, uh, it 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 can be frightening because of what we see coming down the pike. But at the same time, it just shows us that we're getting close to the time when Christ is going to come back and make all things new. That. Uh, he, he keeps his promises, and we know the end of the story. Uh, so believers should be, you know, heeding the words of the Lord. You know, the Bible ends with Jesus saying, I'm coming quickly, meaning suddenly. Uh, we ought to always, uh, you know, be looking for the blessed hope. Um, the good news is there are a lot of people, and I'm just kind of stream of consciousness here talking about different, you know, matters of of positive aspects of all this. There are a lot of people now that are awakening to the reality of the world as it really exists. And they're, they're instead of living in their, you know, normalcy bias and deception. And there, therefore, I think the resistance to this is getting greater and greater. Uh, and it's not going to be easy for Satan and his human counterparts to roll, roll over us and roll this out. Um, uh, so I think uh, prepared the people being prepared means you're going to have food when nobody else does. You're going to have shelter when nobody else does. Um, and so there's some, you know, biblical principles that if you follow them will prepare you for what's to come. Now, at the end of the day, if, you know, the U.S. military wants to turn its weapons on our, our own people, I mean, it's not much you and your, you know, 30 alt six or even your AR-15 are going to be able to do. Uh, but I think we're a long way from that, and I'm not even sure that will ever actually happen. I think we'll see the downfall of America before we see that type of martial law scenario. That's just my guess. I could be wrong on that. But I think what's more likely to happen is, you know, food shortages, civil unrest, 
and we're going to need to be prepared to protect ourselves against marauding mobs and others that are out for no good, bad actors. Um, and the longer we can do that, then the more time we'll have, Gabe, to share Christ with our neighbors, to, uh, you know, to to uh, encourage one another as believers. And I think we got to, you know, the sanctity of life isn't just about abortion. The sanctity of life is about man made in the image of God. And that's why what uh, Klaus Schwab and and Yuval Noah Harari and all of these transhumanists like Elon Musk are, are, that's why it's so evil what they're doing with transhumanism, creating a God. Elon Musk was asked, uh, do you believe in God? He said, not yet, you know, because I haven't created him. <laughs> so uh, so I, I think uh, we need to understand that we have value. We can't surrender. We got to keep fighting. We got to, you know, hope for the best until the Lord calls us home. And that's my goal. Uh, you know, we've raised our kids that way. Most of our kids in the last 15 years, we're raised on this stuff. They're more conversant in it than, than most people. Uh, but they understand they're going to live out their lives, you know, do the next thing, but at the same time, have a perspective that, you know, if something happens, it won't catch them off guard. Um, let me say that in your last chapter, you give 20 reasons oh, or, yes. or, or ideas on uh, how to approach all this information, understand it, and apply it. So I think that was very good, and our readers should know that. Our listeners should know that, and your readers should know that. That in both do, books, yes, you do. Now, give in, in both books, I kind of repeated it. In volume two, I edited it a little bit, but you know, it, it answers the question: Why does all of these? Why do all of these things uh, matter? And I think it's it it's worth reading because it does matter. It does matter. I think the problem is uh, for many of us, especially guys my age and Gary's age, is that we look back to um, growing up in the 1950s and 60s, which was kind of the height of American power and exceptionalism, if you want to call it that, in the world. And um, you, you have a, a really um, a wonderful view of life from those times. Sure. And, um, you know, that's gone. And we wonder what the future holds for our children. And then we read in scripture of these end times, um, the difficulties of the one world government coming and all that. And we wonder, is this the time in which our children are going to experience that, our, especially our grandchildren? And we are concerned, very concerned. Um, so give us some hope. Yeah. So I just preached a couple of weeks ago, a Thanksgiving message from Colossians 3 on set your mind on things above. And it really, it, it impacted me. It wasn't what I was planning to preach that Sunday. I've been going through the book of Acts and I just couldn't get my next section of Acts to come together the way I wanted it. And so about Thursday of that week, I just said, Lord, what do you, what, what, what's on my heart? What are you putting on my heart? What, what could be encouraging to people? And I, and I was drawn to that passage. Uh, and and here's the, the, the thing I would say that hopefully will encourage people. Think about life from the perspective of, of God's word. Stay in the word. See the big picture. Don't be consumed by all that's happening around us, all the, you know, the economy and problems and stresses and anxieties of life. All of that's real and you have to deal with it. And God's word will help us deal with it. But we've got to we've got to immerse ourselves in the word of God. The reason the church is in such dire straits today is because because I believe most churches have abandoned the centrality of the scriptures mm -hmm. uh, in what they're doing. And they've certainly abandoned uh, the study of Bible prophecy. I call that the 84% club. Most churches are part of the 84% club. And I get that from the fact that one third of the Bible is, is, pro is prophetic. Half of that has yet to be fulfilled. That's roughly 16%. So if you're ignoring the subject of end times Bible prophecy, with your churches, you pastors, and I've, I've told them this at pastors' conferences just recently in October, I told a group of pastors, you are derelict in your duty if you are not addressing end times Bible prophecy. You're only teaching 84% of the Bible. They declare yeah, it to I've, be secondary doctrine. Yeah. Well, I've, told people, I've, I've told people the reason pastors don't preach prophecy is because one, they don't think it's important. Two, they think it's divisive. And three, they don't have a position of their own. That's right. They don't know what position they, to take. They have no idea, so they, yeah. they avoid it. We but my challenge, my my challenge, Scott, would be this: first of all, if you if you're stumbling upon this podcast and you don't know the Lord, or you're not sure that you know the Lord, let me implore you to trust in Jesus Christ, the Son mm -hmm. of God, who died and rose again for your sins. He's the only hope. 
if you've already placed your faith in Christ for eternal salvation, you're a believer, my encouragement will be stay in the word. It gives perspective. It helps us see all of this happening through the lens of of what God wants us to see. And, you know, keep fighting. Don't get depressed or discouraged. There's nothing to be discouraged about. This is These are exciting times. I mean, this is the most exciting time to be alive that we could be witnessing uh, you know, the the you know return of the Lord. I mean, obviously it's imminent. We don't know. It could have happened 500 years ago. It might not happen for 100 years, but it sure seems like they, the Luciferians have conquered just about every territory they need to conquer. And at some point, I have to believe God's going to say enough's enough. Well, we want to thank you for joining us today. And My pleasure. We oh, it was look forward to interview. meeting you uh, the second time to discuss the second book. And we want to have a word of prayer for you. And uh, before I do that, is there any way people can get more information from you about you on the internet? Where can they buy your books? Anything you want to say? Yeah. So our website is notbyworks.org, notbyworks.org. And we have tons of free resources there, videos, podcasts, articles, notes. Uh, And then, of course, you can also click on our store and that's where we have a bunch of books and DVDs and streaming video. We're phasing out the DVDs, but all of my books and some other books by like-minded uh, believers, like we carry Andy Woods' stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so check out notbyworks.org. If you want to check out the book specifically, you, the easiest link to remember is just spiritoftheantichrist.org, spiritoftheantichrist.org. I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you for sending us the books to review. Thank you, you so much. It was a blessing. It was. And, and I'd like to pray for you. So let's have just a moment of prayer. Father, I thank you for JB and his commitment to the word of God, his commitment to living the spirit-filled life and being a pastor and being a book writer. We're so thankful for his ministry, not only to his church, but also to the wider church and to us as well. We thank you. And we ask Lord that you would protect him, keep him safe. And Father, um, Help him to have many years of ministry if the Lord tarries. Until then, we just pray, Father, that you would get this message out to the church body um, in, at large, and may they truly embrace the truth and prepare uh, for these days that are coming. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so Amen. much. Yeah. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed it and really look forward to doing it again. Good. We hope Thank you were you. encouraged. Thank I you. Was. Thank you, Jamie. All right, see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Book Podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, like, follow, subscribe on any podcasting platform, on YouTube, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Simply type in at Hear the Book Pod, at Hear the Book Pod. Thank you. See you next time.